You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of The Vet Chat. Today I'm talking to Hillel Doan. She's a vet who started the Vet Confessionals Project and is currently the Director of Wellbeing at the Veterinary Emergency Group in the US. We talk about her work, mental health in the vet profession, and ways practitioners can look after their own well-being. Enjoy. Just for people listening, can you give people a bit of your background? Yeah, definitely. So my name is Dr. Hilal Doan, and I am a veterinarian. I'm also currently the Director of Wellbeing for VEG, which stands for Veterinary Emergency Group. I'm also the founder of the Veterinary Confessionals Project, which I started in my final year of vet school at Massey University in New Zealand. And I am also a certified clinical trauma professional for humans. So I did that certification after I graduated from veterinary school and was living in Maui and just was like studying more about compassion fatigue and found out that really means like secondary traumatic stress. So I dived real deep down into trauma and even got a certification in it and I've been lecturing for the past five years on well-being things that come up with the veterinary confessional project like at conferences mostly in the United States but I've also gone over to the UK and then I've also been writing articles on well-being and vet confessionals and all things traumatic stress related so it's a lot (laughs) but that's basically my background i mean it's a pretty cool idea the vet confessionals one for people who don't know what it is it's a two-part question one is when i found out about your uh, vet confessionals i just assumed that you'd started it after you'd spent a bit of time out in practice and discovered (laughs) the the stresses of being a vet and then decided to start vet confessionals what inspired you to start in um, vet school and then can you just give us a little bit of a more more information as to to what vet confessionals is and what it does for vets yeah definitely that's funny steve that you think that i started it after because i actually am shocked that i started it when i was still in vet school too because i had literally very little idea of what we were about to go into you know <laughs> but basically the project it's i started in my final year of vet school and i basically went to the dean of the vet school tim parkinson at the time and i was like hey i really want to do this well-being project and it's because i've been following this other project in the united states called post secret for the past 10 years that was basically an anonymous like postcard confessional art project that the guy who started it, Frank Warren, had like put up a blog about and like published books about. And I just really found them really interesting. And he would write about how it really helped people with eating disorders or people who hold on to secrets or people who are war veterans, like all sorts of different things. And I just followed that project for a long time and then decided we need something like this for veterinary people because we were getting a lot of talks in vet school about well-being, but I would say it wasn't really connecting well, even though the meaning behind it was good. So I just thought we really needed something where people are talking openly, anonymously maybe, about the issues in our profession. And Tim Parkinson and the mental health department at Massey at the time jumped on board and supported me and some other students got on board and we kind of just like started it as an art project in the school and then I took it to NAVC at the time which is like the largest conference in the United States and it's now called VMX it's in Florida 
And I did an art exhibit there and it kind of <laughs> just took off from there. And to answer the second part of your question about how it helps vets, or not just vets, all veterinary professionals really, whether you're a receptionist or a technician or anyone who's really involved in even industry, is that the f number one first and foremost thing that it does is when people read other confessions, it makes them realize they're not alone. Yeah. Thousands of people have said to me, oh my gosh, I could have written this, you know? They'll read stuff. But even on our Instagram page, which is the most followed and most active, people always send me messages being like, wow, did I write this? This is literally my life. So that's one way is by making people realize they're not alone. The second way is people have an outlet to get something off their chest and just share it, whether it's like funny or happy or sad or like angry or tragic, it doesn't matter. It's just like a community outlet that other that revolves around well-being and allows people to share without fear of repercussions cuz as you probably know, Steve, this is a very small industry, so once your name is attached to something, it can be quite stressful, and I think things this, where there's such a negative stigma with mental health, people are just not comfortable yet fully sharing openly, but hopefully we'll see that's changing. Yeah. It's quite bizarre that we live in an industry where we have really high rates of depression and unusually high rates of suicide and yet most people would still feel uncomfortable sharing that they might be going through a tough time yeah it's i guess it comes yeah. to the territory of being sort of competitive people and and there is regardless of what people say about sharing and stuff there's still the perceived idea that if you were to say you know i'm really struggling or i'm going through a bad patch or anything like that people might Thank God that you know they, they're just not tough enough. And as you say, mm -hmm. it's a small industry, especially in New Zealand, but um, just everywhere really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just the way mental health has been received in the past in terms of depression, suicide, all those kind of things, it hasn't been handled well by society in general. And people have been shamed and locked up, and certain jobs and careers like firefighters or police officers for instance they'd be deemed not fit for duty like all these things play into that so it's just been a tough barrier to break but I think people are coming to realize hey taking care of your mental health is the same as taking care of your physical health and just as if you would injure your sprain an ankle and need to care for that now people are coming more on board with, oh, that's the same with mental health. And I think it's also the advancements in neuroscience and the mental health field in general medically has been also really helpful for that. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing normal about what we do in terms of the, the demands that are put on us, you know, the expectation to, to do 10 consults in the morning where people are demanding a huge deal from you and then maybe put down an animal and then put on a smile for the mm -hmm. next person and then go and do surgery which may or may not go well but there's a very mm -hmm. demanding profession and there's nothing to compare you know I always uh, think that if you look back to what we used to be back when we were I guess cavemen wandering around picking berries and, and wandering around the forest it was probably quite a cruisy lifestyle and <laughs> the modern species probably not just vets but there's a lot of professions that are just not normal or healthy yeah, definitely 100% agree with what you're saying. Also, I think the things that, you know, exactly like you said, one minute you're doing surgery, then you might be euthanizing an animal, and then you have to go put a smile on for the next person. Might be a cute puppy exam or whatever it is, and what if something went wrong in that surgery? You don't have time to recoup from that. What if the euthanasia was really tough? You don't have time to recoup from that. And, some people might say, well, that's just like part of the job, but I think we also need to think about, and this is why I dive so deep into traumatic stress injuries and how that manifests in our profession is because, wait a minute, our jobs are 
especially for people who do emergency, whether you're in general practice, large, e, small, aids, doesn't matter. If you're tending to emergencies or euthanasias, like emergency euthanasias, for instance, you're going to be exposed to a lot more trauma than someone who might not be doing all that. So those kind of things are really important to keep in mind too. But I think like you're saying, it's not just our profession, but our profession is prone because we're also highly empathetic and compassionate people. And yeah, we do kind of have this leading heart personality. As much as we might not show it, we're in it because we really care and we really want to help. And unfortunately, all the helping professions are kind of prone to compassion fatigue as a byproduct. <laughs> One of the comments you made was the likes of being on call and doing euthanasia is just part of the job. That doesn't change the fact that it's unusually and unhealthily stressful. Yes, it is mm -hmm. part of the job and it's something that we have to do. But it's kind of like brushing it under the carpet or sweeping it to the side. I mm -hmm. think we, that's not really an argument for whether or not we should address it. It's part of the yeah. job, but it's also quite clearly something that's causing us to be probably on average more stressed and unhappy than the usual professions. Yeah, 100%. I agree, Steve, because... Like a couple weeks ago, I was doing a peer mental health training with the South Metro Denver Fire Rescue guys, and they only just set up an organizational peer mental health training for their team because they realized they were handling mental health all wrong as a fire department, and they invited me to their training, and they were just saying, oh my gosh, no, your guys' jobs, we couldn't do your guys' job. We all have pets. All the firefighter guys were yeah. like, and there were some police academy guys there, and we all kind of shared our stories and talked about traumatic stress injuries and how they manifest. And it's just really interesting because it's even professions like that that get a lot of recognition about, you know, they have to go to fatal fire calls or whatever is happening, but their schedules are also set up in a way to try and give them the rest and the break. And for veterinarians, like you said, it's not normal. It's considered, oh, it's just part of the job. Just deal with it. But even for them, they were realizing through the past eight years, they've been setting up their well-being department and all this training for wellness. They were realizing all the things they did wrong and how they handle certain situations weren't the right and best way for mental health. And they're trying to take steps to mitigate all of that and make it better for the future. And I think in this industry as well, we need to be thinking about that and just how just because things have been being done for a certain way for a really long time and no one's really questioned it. People have just kind of burnt out and left. Maybe we need to be questioning all these things. Maybe our schedules do need to be different. Maybe we do need more time between appointments. I mean, I don't know exactly what the solution is, but we definitely need to be looking at it differently. One of the things from your background is I see that as well as being a vet, you've also owned a vet clinic. Well, I own my own mobile business, so I didn't actually own a brick-and-mortar clinic. But a mo mobile Don't know if that clinic. changes. Yeah, where I did a lot of house calls. This was when I lived on Maui, and I did oh, that right. for almost a year because yeah. there was a really important need for it, and I was burning out at the brick-and-mortar <laughs> practices I was working at. And I just wanted to do something different. And actually, I loved it when I was doing it. It gave me the freedom to make my own schedule. I was slowly building my client base. I was running it out of my home because in the U.S. you can do that basically with your DEA license and everything and having a safe and business license. You can just run everything out of your home and car. But the reason that I ask is because it's one thing having the stress of being a vet and throw in the business ownership aspect, which often, you know, comes with managing staff and and financial pressures and that sort of thing. I guess your situation was probably a little bit different, but did you find in some ways it made things more challenging? Yeah, definitely. There's always pros and cons, you know, to owning your own business or being your own manager. But in Maui, it was just different because like I already was answering all the calls like when I was on call. I already was by the phone 24-7. I was doing 
already a lot of things on my own so it is kind of a little bit what I was already doing but normally yeah I would say it's different because you have to book all your own appointments you have to market yourself but in Maui it was pretty simple I just went to all the regular brick and mortar vets letting them know that I could do mobile visits because it was a huge need and there was only one other person really doing it on the island. I also would fly over to other islands and do relief work. So I would do spays and neuters or things like that or help out at shelters. So I kind of would say the stress of it was really just being in charge of your own schedule. But honestly, in my mind, it wasn't that stressful because I'm more of someone who like needs that freedom to make my own schedule to make my own calls, to decide how I'm planning my day or my week or my month. And that's just very personal to me. Some people really yeah. like the consistent schedule, knowing that a paycheck's coming in, how much money's coming in, all that. I'm more like, I need to make sure I have control over my appointments because yeah. one of the things that stressed me out the most was getting booked back-to-back -to -back appointments, not really having any say and what you did or what you saw and just being everything thrown on you <laughs> without much say. So that's my two cents on that. <laughs> it's actually a really good point. I found similar to you and I know a lot of vets I talk to that say, you know, that it's a lack of control and a lack of autonomy when you're just getting back to back and I have mates who will send me Snapchats where it's like an appointment's been booked in their lunch break or their lunch break's been reduced or, you know, they've said, oh, there's only one vet available this afternoon, keep appointments light, and then they send a, mm -hmm. a, a screenshot of their bookings, and it's like double booked all Friday afternoon. Yeah. And there's just, it's not only unfair, but there's no control there. And one of the mm -hmm. things that resonated with me that you just said was I think people need to become aware of what works for them and understand that they don't necessarily have to do a Monday to Friday, well, not that it's a Monday to Friday job anyway, but they don't necessarily have to do what's considered a normal vet job. I mean, if, if you want more control of your hours, it's perfectly reasonable to locum or do something similar to, to what you're doing. But yeah, I guess it definitely comes down to the person, but I think maybe some vets need to get better at self-reflection and actually understanding what they're enjoying in their days like reflecting on what they've done in their day and think oh actually I really enjoy the consulting or I don't know surgery really stresses me out maybe I should do more consulting or vice versa giving yeah. people that understanding yeah definitely I remember lecturing at some conferences and vets coming up to me and being like but I can't say I'm not going to do surgery and I was like why not if you hate it why are you doing it if it stresses you out beyond recognition the times are changing now and I was locuming pretty much and I still locum it's called relief over here in the United States but I'm basically a relief vet and I do Primarily emergency relief, apart from my well-being directorship now, which has taken the majority of my time. But before I took this job as a director of well-being, I was primarily doing emergency relief, which is very in high demand in big cities in the United States. And I loved it. There were no appointments. You just saw emergencies as they came in. Sure, emergency is a whole nother ballgame in itself of stress and trauma that you deal with. But I felt like I had such a great schedule. I had a great support. There were always other vets working with me on the floor to take as much time with the case as I needed, obviously within reason, but because there's no appointments being scheduled and people have to wait. That's just what worked for me. And I would work maybe two or three days a week, 10 to 12 hour shifts. Sometimes they would turn into 14 hours, but it worked perfect because then I would have five to four days to recover or do whatever I want and honestly it was a dream come true for me and that's just what worked for me that might not work for everyone you should really think about what works for you what do you care about and what do you really want to be doing with your career because the cool thing about being a veterinarian is that literally doors are open for you and you just have to decide where you want to go with it yeah Going back to your comment about the emergency work, from speaking from personal experience, I wouldn't have necessarily said that the emergency aspect of after hours or just emergency work in general is necessarily more stressful, 
sometimes the most benign <laughs> consults like a vaccination can end up being really stressful because the um, owners are so demanding. True. Whereas often in an emergency situation, after getting the initial information from the owner, they're actually out of the picture and you're left to do your job. Um, mm. So just because it's an emergency doesn't necessarily make it more stressful. That is very true. And how you feel about emergencies and trauma. This is more coming from the trauma background of like witnessing trauma and how trauma can create secondary traumatic stress. If you, let's say you see a lot of hit by cars or like severed limbs or high rise falls or bad things. That's what I'm more talking about. But yeah, I see yeah. what you're saying because the clients being overly demanding can also cause traumatic stress. And I know this podcast isn't all about trauma, but I really care about it because the way traumatic stress happens in the brain is based on perception. So if someone perceives a certain event as, well, it's basically like you feel either extreme helplessness or, or fear. But helplessness is the number one thing in helping professions that causes trauma. People don't realize that it's actually the feeling of helplessness that can cause more trauma than fear or horror. Because in a helping profession, if you're feeling like you're doing everything you can to help someone and it's just not working out. For instance, I had this one case where the lady brought her dog in. He had eaten something. It was a foreign body. And he was going septic, and I was basically like, look, he really needs to go to surgery. He is already going septic. Like, it's obvious. We had an ultrasonographer, and it was confirmed and everything, but she did not want to go to surgery, and she did not want to euthanize. <laughs> and I felt so helpless. I didn't even understand at the time that was a feeling of helplessness, but she wanted to just go home with the dog and wait for, because she was buying a house, and she didn't want to take out new credit to for the surgery because she would need to open a new credit card and she was like no i have to wait at least until tomorrow and i was like your dog might not have until tomorrow i'm sorry this is maybe going to interfere with you buying a house things like that where i realized i was so upset after that interaction because i felt so helpless i couldn't do anything for that dog and knew that it was probably going to go home and die a horrible death that might be a really extreme example but even something like that, like you have to be thinking about in which scenarios do I feel that way? Which scenarios when I walk away from, I feel terrible and why do I feel that way? So that might help. But yeah, Steve, what you're saying about regular practice as well can also have like very high stress. Just to go back well, to the vet confessionals, one of mm -hmm. um, the things I'm curious about is the main thing seems to be that people write in and sort of share their, their stories and stuff. Is there, now that it's been going for a few years, is there more support in terms of general well-being and recommendations for people? Well, yeah, there, it, the project itself is still that, but I also do post a lot of articles about things that are inspired from the confessions, and then I am working on a podcast as well, and a lot of the work I've been doing with this company that I'm working for right now, Veterinary Emergency Group, is trying to figure out well-being strategies for companies yep. and so my hope is to also utilize the project in a way to try and bring that information back to everyone not just this specific company but our goals are to try and figure out best practices for well-being and what do those look like what do those look like from an organizational standpoint what do they look like from a personal standpoint like personally you know one of the things everyone needs to have I think is a therapist. I mean, some people might still think that's crazy and I would say they should be trauma trained. But if you're in the veterinary profession, working actively as a veterinarian or any professional, I think you should be speaking with a mental health professional regularly. And this is just so you can upkeep your mental hygiene and make sure you're checking in with someone. Like you should have personally a self-care plan what is a self-care plan? It should be what you do to take care of yourself. What do you do when things are going good and you're just doing maintenance care versus when something really big happens? 
what are the strategies you deploy at that point in time that should all be in your plan things like that so it's not like the project itself will change but a lot of things have been inspired because of the project if that makes sense (laughs) it does yeah thinking about stuff that we should have and practices and it can apply to both large animal and small animal but I think this is more relevant to the companion animal practice when people have their morning tea and their lunch breaks I think those should be not only compulsory but basically measures should be put in place that you have your 15 minutes no matter what Mm -hmm. and provided you're in a practice that has at least two vets if an emergency were to come in at your morning tea appointment That's someone else's responsibility. You shouldn't have a phone on you. You should be able to leave the building, have a quiet place to go and genuinely switch off for 15 minutes and then again at lunch, genuinely get an hour. If a client turns up 10 minutes early, you say, well, look, the vet's on their break and and that's that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things from a companion animal point of view is quite difficult to deal with. With large animals, there tends to be more natural breaks driving between um, calls so even though driving is so much a, a break I don't think it's as emotionally demanding um, in that respect yeah well and it, driving is sort of a break as long as I mean especially in New Zealand I mean as long as you don't have severe road rage or traffic to deal with which some <laughs> people might not agree that driving is yeah. a break but when you're a country that you know you're not really dealing with horrible traffic or jerks on the road anyway like there are some practices here that I've done locum work for regular they're not emergency they're just day practices some will see emergencies some won't but there are the practices that actually close for lunch are my favorite practices because they actually lock the doors they don't answer the phones they send it to voicemail they say they're closed for lunch there's even some human clinics like my regular doctor's clinic also does this, and I think it's so great. It's frustrating yeah, sometimes really as a client because you're like, yeah, as a client, if you're accidentally calling at noon, you're like, ah, they're closed. I got to wait an hour. Or you're showing up for the lab blood test at noon and they're closed. But it's actually so important, I think, for the – I stand behind that. So even if I get frustrated as a customer (laughs) when being on the other side I 100% support those types of behaviors I didn't ever really see that happen that much in New Zealand or in Hawaii but being in Denver I'm starting to see it more so maybe it's a new thing (laughs) one one of the challenges with the actual actually closing the the practice and I I think it's a great idea but um, being this is one of the issues with feet practice is that it's a generally a business and if you're thinking from a business perspective if you're closed during lunch and people are going to pop in to grab a worm treatment or you know have a vaccination consult or whatever they want to do there might be the fear that the vet clinic down the road is open and that you're going to lose mm. that business mm. So I, I don't know, that's where potentially businesses need to work together more and say, hey, this is something we're thinking about doing. We don't want to mm. lose business and you wouldn't want to lose business doing this either, but we think it would be a good idea for both our businesses if we actually have an official shut-off time from 12 to 1. Are you happy to you know, agree to this? I mean, yeah, I definitely. To work together more and rather than seeing each other as the enemy, potentially collaborate. Yeah, also works 100%. sharing after hours as well. Definitely. Even if they want to switch off, like their lunch break times, someone be open from 11. Someone closed from 11 to noon and the other person closed from noon to 1 or something. But I don't know. I agree. Definitely working together in this industry makes much more sense to supporting mental health. And the support you get from your community is the number one protection against mental health disorders so your community is extremely key and that means not just your immediate work community but your peers outside of your immediate work community as well so it would be great if we could see more of us working together than in competition because from the business standpoint you could also say okay but the 
point is the more we carry on like this, more people are going to burn out. Are we just doing the churn and burn? Like how much is that costing the company, you know, to rehire, to put people on payroll, all those things. And I know it doesn't directly translate, but in the big picture scheme of things, it does. (laughs) Yeah. The churn and burn, the cynic in me thinks that there's actually a lot of businesses that just do that. They think, well, this isn't a sustainable profession. We'll just take a young vet and work them to the ground for three years and then discard them and hire another young vet. I mean, there's not really, especially when young vets don't get paid um, that well Mm -hmm. compared to senior vets, there's not really that much motivation for businesses to take mental health more seriously. Yeah, that's true. I mean, some people might just be like, we're just going to follow the churn and burn model. We don't care. The vet schools are pumping out more students than, you know, they're taking on more and more students. And But ultimately, has anyone actually dived deep into the numbers of how much it really is costing them? You know, that's something I'm working on with the company I'm working with now. When you think about marketing, recruiting, advertising for those positions... I mean, in the United States, at least, you are paying for people's health care, their retirement accounts, all those things. How much are you investing into that? And then how much does that cost you when you actually lose that person? It might on the surface look like churn and burn makes sense, but like, does it really? Because I don't think anyone's really explored it. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a question just... In general, <laughs> don't know yeah. who has the answer for that, but yeah, it is a good point because there is a lot of hidden costs to hiring a new staff member, and, and of course, the other aspect of it too is if you're having high churn and burn, then potentially your business isn't going to do as well as a vet business where they have a couple of vets who've been there twenty years and everyone's happy and the clients know they're um, vet and vice versa. Yeah, there is value that comes with building rapport with building clientele like that people have known this doctor forever and new grads make more mistakes and they sell less i mean like if we're just looking at from a purely business standpoint the reality is when we first graduate we're a lot more insecure we don't know what we're talking about as good as the more seasoned vets do and we also make more mistakes which costs like what are the costs of that all those hidden costs you know of course that's all a part of the process but also the new grads need the seasoned vets and if all the new grads are starting with young vets which i've been seeing more of actually less and less seasoned vets how is this helping our profession like in the whole i've definitely noticed in my relatively short career a change in the expectations of owners so i mean you you can go back 20 years and think that the cat never went to the vets and the dog slept outside mm-hmm. and now that same dog is the fur baby and yeah. his clothes <laughs> and is considered the family's third child with that comes a much higher expectation but the nature of our profession is that we're always going to be to a certain degree a jack of all trades and yet mm-hmm. we, i sometimes feel like we've got the expectations of say if you took your kid to the GP, they're effectively a specialist. If they're going to go for surgery, they're going to get a specialist surgeon. If they've got a sprained ankle, they're going to go to a physio. If they've got a broken arm, they're going to go to get an x-ray. And us vets are expected to do all that in one and then still have what seems like an incredibly high expectations. Have you seen that yourself in your career? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first point that you bring up about people's pets becoming their babies is highly stressful. People will, with no shame, admit that they love their pets more than their kids, you know? Like, they'll be like, yeah, I have three sons, but, you know, this is my real baby. Like, they'll be like, those guys are not even entirely joking either. (laughs) Yeah, no, and you're just like, oh, no, they're actually serious. Like, they would, like, do anything for this dog or cat or whatever, you know, and that does put a lot of pressure and for some people you're like it's their only friend or it's their best friend or it's extremely stressful and that has changed a lot and also the second point that you make is the expectation of us on Maui it was very much like we had to do all the things and we had to just tell people look like I mean we didn't have specialists on Maui so we were like unless you're planning on flying to Oahu like you got me, you know, that's it. I'll do my best. But yeah, I think now with specialists and now being in a bigger city and working 
in a specialty hospital. There's pros and cons. Sometimes it's great because it takes the pressure off me. I don't have to do this complicated surgery. But then other times you feel like, dang, I really could have helped this person's pet, but because we have the specialist, I can't really do the surgery. You know, so it's kind of like, Again, I think it just comes back to what is it for you? Because for some people, I know they really liked being in that position, especially on Maui. Some of the doctors I worked with, they said that's what kept it interesting for them. And then I've heard other people complain that, oh, the specialty is taking all the joy and fun away from vet med. So I do think it depends on how you look at it. And again, what are the primary stressors for you? But I think it comes down to really stressful because like people's pets are becoming like human essentially and very important humans. And that's not something our industry is really used to dealing with. And people in general, I think even humans who own the pets, I don't even think they know what to do with all those emotions because they're not used to probably loving something more than their kids. (laughs) So it's all new for everyone. So given that you're the Director of Wellbeing at the Veterinary Emergency Group, can you give us some tips to the average practitioner of things they can do in their ordinary day to improve their own well-being? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, it start, everything we do in our company is really trying to teach people about emotional intelligence and self-awareness because it really starts there. I know it sounds cliche, But it is true because your well-being depends on your awareness of what affects your well-being. And this is very different for different people. Certain things, yes, we'll all agree on, like losing a patient in surgery can certainly be really traumatic. Those kind of things are no-brainers. But there are a lot of things in our profession that don't affect people the same way. So really, like, doing that self-assessment and we do a lot of extracurricular kind of trainings on emotional intelligence and self-awareness and then that ties into well-being by making sure people feel comfortable speaking up and asking for help which a lot of people have been doing they come to me a lot for things they're struggling with whether it's directly work related or not just trying to encourage people to speak up more if you don't say anything it's really hard for us to know because people will always ask me oh what are the things i should be looking out for in my peers and it's like well it looks different on everyone and some people hide it really well so we really need people if they're struggling to speak up so that's another thing we really encourage but also when people speak up making sure that you know how to handle that information is really important too like if someone comes to you and tells you they're struggling and you're not emotionally equipped to deal with that information, then you can kind of make it worse. So one of the things I just implemented at the company is getting suicide training company-wide, making sure everyone goes through it. It's called question, persuade, refer, and just asking the right questions. Even if you're suspecting and someone doesn't come directly to you, kind of how to have that conversation. And the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, has this training for all members. So I'm not sure if the NZVA has anything like that, but at least on the U.S. continent, we have that as part of something they've been pushing. And so I really want to get it at VEG as well, um, because I think it's really important for everyone who works in this industry to know how to have a conversation around that, whether you're the one who's feeling that way or you're talking to someone who's feeling that way. That's in emergencies kind of more extreme. But the other points that I was learning about is how to start a peer mental health support group for veterinary professionals. You know, that's why I went and did the training with the Fire Academy, because when critical events happen, certain patients are lost or something really severe happens, how the company or how your peers respond to that event will determine if you will develop traumatic stress effects from that or not. It's the difference between you might have lost a patient, let's say in surgery, and someone coming up to you and having an empathetic conversation, like, oh my gosh, I know how hard this is. I've been here. If you need to talk, I'm here. Versus being like, what did you do wrong? 
Oh my God, like freaking out, like, which, you know, I know it sounds funny, but people react differently to certain things and how your team responds to this stuff is really important, especially when you're first coming on board with the team, but all the time. And especially then just a new grade too. Especially as a new grad, you know, there's so much that goes into well-being and that's from the company standpoint, but also from your own self. Ultimately, no one can know what's best for you other than you. So if you don't have a mental health professional you're talking to, if you don't have a self-care plan, like Steve, what do you do for your self-care? For instance, when you need to do something that makes you happy or makes you feel relaxed, what are some of the things you do, for instance? So that's a really good question. I've heard a lot about well-being through the vet script and the NZVA for the last few years, and and you sort of read the article and don't take it too seriously. But I actually started meditating last year when I was working in full-time companion animal practice, and I just thought oh, I've really got to give this a go because I was coming home from work so stressed. And what I'd do is in my lunch breaks I would go and um, have my lunch and then try and meditate for sort of twenty to thirty minutes. And it doesn't always make a difference, but there was one time in particular where I'd had a really stressful morning. I had an emergency come in at quarter to one. My lunch break was at one. So I ended up getting lunch at about three o'clock. And when I went and had my lunch, I meditated for pretty much the entire lunch break. And I came back and it was like all the stresses of the morning had just gone. So for people that are skeptical about meditation, it really does work. Don't expect that the first time you meditate, it's going to go well. It's actually quite a frustrating process until you figure out what works for you. But meditating definitely does work. It's something that I'm intending to do more than I currently do, but that's one thing. The other obvious ones, and this gets mentioned over and over again, especially for people that are depressed, is exercising um, Mm -hmm. and making that a, a... daily habit so if it's first thing in the morning or when you come home from work and your running shoes are sitting there or whatever it is you do to exercise is making exercise a daily habit and alongside exercise is looking after yourself in terms of just general health so you know eating relatively well making sure you're getting enough sleep which of course with on-call and emergency work isn't always the case but you can still Mm -hmm. look after your health and it's amazing what a good meal and a 30-minute run will do for your mental um, well-being. Yeah, I mean, you named a lot right there, and I agree. Meditation is incredibly helpful. Some people with severe trauma, they need a little bit more help with meditation because it depends on sometimes being completely alone with your thoughts can trigger anxiety. So that's everyone needs to have a mental health professional because if something like that happens when you're meditating, then you should talk to someone about it. But ultimately, the science behind meditation is that it essentially activates your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's a lot of times when you're highly stressed, you're in a sympathetic nervous system response. And so really, it's just about balancing your stress hormones. And (laughs) meditation like helps with that yoga helps with that exercise helps with that yeah when you're running you're you know obviously engaging sympathetic response but it's more in a healthy way like you're not running away from a tiger or a rabbit dog whereas a lot of times our nervous system when we're stressed when it's engaged in an unhealthy way and sometimes parasympathetic nervous system can be engaged in an unhealthy way and you can shut down and that's why i'm saying it looks different for everyone because some people lean on the shutdown go quiet or freeze or faint method, which is extreme, like lowered nervous system activation and parasympathetic. But like, I know I'm getting really technical with the (laughs) anatomy terms here, but basically what I'm saying is that you need to figure out, yeah, what is the thing that makes you feel better? Even forcing yourself to go on that run. I run all the time. And some days I really don't want to go because I know I'm going to feel better afterwards. I'm just focused on the end result of that. And honestly, when I started having more control over my shifts, I was able to eat healthier. I wondered for a long time why I was so bad with my diet and why I would just like whatever. And, you know, at vet clinics, we always have not the healthiest (laughs) treats being brought in and ordered and 
pizza and donuts and that kind of stuff. It, that's just easy to scarf down. And once I started balancing out my schedule more and having more time to make food even and pack a healthy meal, all that stuff, it kind of is baby steps, but it all played into me making sure I made this profession sustainable for myself. So just stay here in their dry companies. Don't bring us pizza. Bring us a salad, please. <laughs> yeah, but then like everyone complains about the salad because yeah, essentially yeah. the salad... Oh, I want a pizza. Well, yeah, and carbohydrates actually, when you eat carbs, they do decrease your cortisol levels. So there is a reason you want to eat the pizza and the donuts because you're stressed and you're running around and then you're starving and your blood sugar's dropped and... So you're reaching for that. The salad could be sitting there, but you're probably not going <laughs> to. I've had a lot of people throw carrots at me and be like, why are you bringing us healthy food? We don't want it. <laughs> like, We want the donuts. So, you know, yeah. but then it can go wrong. <laughs> you mentioned when we first started talking about the tips for well-being, you said something and then being self-aware. I think mm -hmm. that's an element that so many people just aren't and it, it is such an important part to your your own well-being actually the lockdown gave me the opportunity to do more self-reflection than I've ever done in my life and when you <laughs> actually stop and consider what feelings came up in your day um, and you do that daily some people might write in the journal and it doesn't mean telling your life story it might just be writing down a couple of notes from the day of things that made you feel good and things that made you feel bad you're not necessarily going to overnight realize what makes you happy. But I found consistently consulting was really, really stressful. Even the most benign consults could be very stressful because the clients in this area were so demanding. And that forced me to sort of reassess, hang on, I'm spending you know, 70% of my day consulting. This is not a sustainable profession for me, or at least not that, that aspect of the profession anyway. And obviously it'll be different for every person, but people should really take that whole sort of self-awareness thing quite seriously. And yeah. even if it just means writing a couple of things, like one thing that made you feel good and one thing that made you feel bad in your day, and then just doing that for a few weeks, you'll be surprised what comes up. Yeah, that's such a good point, Steve, because it's true. And sometimes you think, I'm supposed to like this because everyone else likes this and you hate it, you know, and you're just like, why do I keep doing this? This is clearly not the right thing for me. For instance, like consulting, that's the same for me with surgery. I could do it, you know, I could go in and spay and neuter all day and be fine. But honestly, I did not really like it at all. I preferred consulting. Honestly, talking to clients, hanging out with the animals that are awake <laughs> that I could play with, you know. But some people like surgery is their jam, you know. So I agree. Figure out what it is for you and try not to worry so much about what other people think or other people are doing. Because I think we do tend to compare ourselves a lot. Maybe it's our personalities of high achievers. I don't know. <laughs> try and just like... Do you. <laughs> Who's to say that all your mates or colleagues are actually really enjoying themselves anyway? Yeah. Who's to say? You don't. Probably not, given the burnout rate in our profession and the suicide rates. It's probably a lot of people aren't really talking about the stuff that are really important. But then they posted that one photo on Instagram, and I'm sure that reflects their entire day. <laughs> Yeah, right. Let's not even get started on social media. I mean, okay, to be fair, I use social media for vet confessionals because it's purely for mental health support and informational educational content. I'm talking about more of that personal kind of social media, maybe, where it's yeah. projecting a false image. Because, well, some people believe that image because they're like, oh, if I... Try and look this way and act this way long enough, I will eventually be this. But really, you're just spinning your wheels and you're actually miserable. But they haven't even stopped to think about that, you know? They're like, no, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm great. <laughs> I just cry on my lunch breaks all the time, but, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, so, um, um, the other thing I was going to say yeah. to pay attention with self-awareness is, that writing idea, Steve, that you said is really cool. Like, 
writing for me, for sure, 100%. I'm a writer. I journal, write all the time. But also, if you can stop to notice how something feels in your body, that's what my therapist has me focus on a lot. She's trauma trained and we do all of these kind of exercises. But she always asks me, how did that feel in your body? Because sometimes your body's giving you cues. You might feel a pit in the in your stomach or you might start to sweat. You might notice your heart's pounding or your mouth might get dry or... You know, there are things that your body will cue you into before your mind's even conscious of what's going on. A lot of times we like stop listening to our body, especially when we're seeing appointments back to back. Some people won't even pee or eat for hours. You know, you start shutting down your normal body signals. And so I would urge people to try and maybe start paying attention to your body signals again. So just finally, Lal, where can we find out more about yourself and Vic Confessionals? Definitely the website is probably the most comprehensive. So www.veterinaryconfessionalsproject.com. I'm always posting on Instagram, though, and once the podcast. So we've been recording a lot of podcasts for Vet Confessionals, but they haven't gone live yet. So that will probably go up on Instagram. It's at Vet Confessionals. so if you follow the vet confessionals instagram you're probably going to stay in the know but the website is where people can submit online secrets there's a form on there that people can go online and i get secrets every day still (laughs) through that form and i have articles posted on there about trauma if any of the stuff i said sounded remotely interesting and you want to read more i have a ton of articles in the blog section of the website and through Instagram, you you can find links to a lot of those articles. So that's the best place to go is yeah. Instagram and the website. <laughs> <laughs> now, cheers for coming on the podcast. Hello. Cool. So well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.